0: Support for WAER Original Podcasts comes from California Closets of Syracuse, located in DeWitt. California Closets can help you get your entire home organized with custom-designed storage solutions for the home office, kitchen pantry, closets, and more. Online at californiaclosets.com.
1: You're sending money out of Syracuse, and not just for 30 years, for the rest of their life. But when you are told that there's a promise that your generation will be better than the previous generation, and we're seeing that the statistics tells us that that's not the case, it's evidently clear that it only is going to change if we are gonna be the ones who fight for our future. So we wanna put in context because it's not just a class issue, it's a race issue. We're telling black and brown people and poor people, you don't matter. Welcome to Afro Futures. It's been a minute since we've been on the show. And just for full disclosure, I wanted to let folks know that this is season two. Season one has been really situated in trying to get people to understand a little bit about what goes on in my head when I look at and interpret and engage on these issues. And in this second season, um, I'm really trying to help folks get really more deeply, deeply engaged in what building that future looks like. What are the major issues that are affecting us and and how do we look to the people that are doing the work to help guide us in our both understanding activism around the issues that are most pertinent to us? To kick this off, I really am super happy to see uh, and to really introduce you all to a colleague, a friend, and a really emerging scholar, Jay Arzu. Jay is so many things. He's an urbanist. He's a planner. he is just an all-around good guy, um, but is currently at UPenn pursuing a PhD. We're gonna definitely talk about what Jay is doing. We're gonna t- we're gonna really get a sense of who Jay is. But I want to begin with the conversation by welcoming you f- officially to Afro Futures uh, and thanking you for being here. So, welcome, Jay.
0: Uh, Yusuf, I have to say, you know, thank you for inviting me. I've wanted to be on the show for quite some time, and I'm just elated to be here and looking forward to this conversation.
1: No, listen, man, the honor is all mine. And and it's kind of like the second time that you and I have been able to be in conversation like this. Previously, when I worked at the New York Civil Liberties Union, I had you come for a discussion on Interstate 81 based on just the collaboration that we had and looking at the kind of converging interests that we both share on, on the need to think through these issues Of infrastructure, these issues of planning, these issues of transportation from not just an equity lens, but a racial justice lens, centering racial justice at the core of it. And we're going to get to that and we're going to talk about the infrastructure bill, but I always think it's tremendously important for us to understand the person first, because you didn't just happen to one day stumble into transportation as an area that you're interested in, right? Like it's based off of where you come from, your life. And so can you give us a little bit of, you know, your quick life story? Like wh- where are you from and like what what brought you to this work and why you care so much about it?
0: Yes, I, I certainly can. Um, well, my humble story begins in the South Bronx. I was, you know, raised there in Mitchell Projects, right at the, you know, the southern point of the Bronx. And my building was the closest building to the Major Deegan Expressway. Subsequently, whenever I went to the park with my friends, I realized that, you know, we all had something in common. We all, you know, suffered from asthma. And because of that, I thought that growing up with asthma was just a rite to passage for kids because everyone around me, all the young, young children, and even young adults, had asthma. Not recognizing it was because our schools were across the street from a major highway. Our playground was across the street from a major highway. And where we physically lived was across from a major highway. So that got me involved in a lot of community-based organizations. When, you know, I I became of age, I recognized there were some major disparities in the South Bronx and certain parts of the Bronx as a whole. And I wanted to do something about it. I didn't know how I would do it, but I I thought that through looking for community-based organizations like the Northwest Bronx Community Clergy and Coalition and Moms and and different organizations that's doing amazing work on the ground in the Bronx that I would, you know, find my way. Ultimately, went to college, did that thing, worked my butt off, and I ultimately became a Fulbrighter in Italy. And when I was coming back from from Italy, I knew I wanted to get back to DC, but find something that would connect me back to my community or find a way to give back to the Black community. Because I wanted to use my expertise to give back. I was always told, you don't move, you improve. So my version of doing that is going going to an institution, getting that knowledge and bringing it back to my community. So in doing that, I ended up coming across a position with the Congressional Black Caucus Foundation, the Transportation Equity Fellow position. And I was blessed to get that position with the CBCF quickly. I was looking for what should I be researching? What are, you know, what are things affecting our, our, our black and brown communities? And as I started, you know, getting on Google Maps and looking at aerial photos of a lot of these communities, there was one thing that really stood out. That was the fact that many of these communities had highways straight through the middle of it. It didn't matter if it was Kansas City, Baltimore, Los Angeles, Philadelphia, if you looked at a city and looked at a Black neighborhood, there was a good chance that there was a highway through it. And then I started out, I got very curious to wonder why, why, you know, I had heard about the Interstate Act 1956 and and Eisenhower pushing for the interstate and through the History Channel and all that stuff. I've always been kind of a nerd for that, that kind of thing. But why were these put through Black communities what was the cause and what were the ultimate after effects? And as I started to dig deeper and deeper, I started to come across communities like, like Syracuse and Rochester, that not only did they build these highways through the middle of the communities, a lot of the black business owners, a lot of the, the, the tight knit communities that were there that serviced these communities directly, were destroyed and and i noticed it, it seemed more like strategic in a sense it was a way to to disband a, a tight knit community and then i started looking for what were the worst cases what were the worst what were the worst projects that that happened within the last 50 60 years and then I read about i 81 and was completely in disbelief that that could happen in new york state i read about the Claiborne Expressway in New Orleans, I I read about what happened to the Rondo neighborhood in Minneapolis. And overall, I, I was appalled by the fact that there were black communities that were fighting tooth to nail, to get these highways to be rerouted around their communities, use the railroad embankment, you know, go around. And highway planners of that time would still Build these highways through the center of these communities. And after looking at the history, I got brought to the present. What does that mean for people living next to the highways like I did when I was growing up? You know, many of the same consequences poor performing schools, high asthma rates, different health disparities. And I wondered what's the actual answer to this? What can we do to help these communities that are in a literal sense, between a rock and a hard place. And that's where, Yousef, uh, I think we connected because I've seen the work you were doing with the I-81 Viaduct Project. And just off of my studies, I knew that that was probably going to be the first major domino to fall. Still waiting for that for that to get going. It's just taking longer. The environmental impact statement can take quite, quite a bit of time. But I was very curious to see how the New York State Department of Transportation would move on that project? Would they move for racial equity along with traffic metrics? Or would this just be straight traffic metrics? Or would it be a situation where the suburbanites who were crying and screaming about the removal of the highway would ultimately win? And going on now is that I, I wanted to take this work of highway removal and really bring this to higher academia, because, you know, I want to give credit where credit's due. There are people who are, who, who have done amazing work in this field, you know, Eric Avila, UCLA, you know, you have Norman Garrett at UConn and uh, Carolyn Crockett at MIT. They've done amazing, amazing work, have written books about highways through through these communities. But I guess what, what I wanted to focus on was best, how, how do we find the best performing solution to remove this highway, have racial justice, have environmental justice, rebuild these communities for the people who are in the community, and basically look at best practice to see who's doing that, who's missed the ball, so that, you know, for future cities, we can get prepared, because I I believe that this is going to be the norm for the next 50 years. I feel like for the rest of my life, I'm going to be working with cities to remove highways, and rebuild re-knit communities build equitable communities affordable housing because we can't pretend we don't have a housing crisis we can't pretend that we don't have an educational crisis and i think that through rebuilding our cities bringing wealth to our communities that we can actually touch and feel and use to rebuild our american cities i think that that's really really not only the future but I honestly think it will bring our communities closer together. And nothing sounds better to me than national reconciliation. And I think that through highway removal in a broader sense, we can start that conversation of what we need to do.
1: There was a lot there. And there are a lot of respective synergies between your experiences and the kind of maturation of your thought process and even my own. And I want to just engage with you a bit on this because I, too, am from the Bronx. And I, too, lived approximate uh, to the Major Deacon Expressway. I lived on 174th Street. And so the fourth train was a few blocks from my house. And you would see on Nelson Park, uh, which is on University Avenue, the major deacon is like right next there. So like kids are playing by a park. There's this like depressed highway that all the fumes and exhaust. For me, it was a, it was a class in undergrad sociology of the African-American experience with Dr. Keisha Anemachan Ducre. We'll never forget her. We inevitably became colleagues. And so I used to call a professor all the time. And she was like, "We're colleague? You can call me Keisha. I'm like, okay, professor. <laughs> uh, but... For me, her class and her class talking about and exposing me to environmental racism, the opposite environmental justice, and talking about the interstate highway system and rooting it in an environmental justice framework was revolutionary for me in that everything that I knew intuitively that was problematic. In your example about asthma and respiratory illnesses, my niece has bad asthma. I used to joke that the trees in the Bronx look like like they were so deformed that it looked like someone had infused them with crack because like it just it was so bad that it was evident that the trees were not developing properly. And it isn't just that there wasn't enough tree canopy coverage across the Bronx or green space or that there was a bunch of concrete and buildings all over the place. It was that we were living in a neighborhoods across the Bronx where uh, people were transporting and, and kind of getting from point A to point B, and their exhaust was the air that we were breathing. Um, and we were the collateral effects of that exhaust that not only ensured that our lungs weren't performing at their fullest capacity, but as you say, that we were not having the best school systems, et cetera. And it isn't haphazard that our neighborhoods were the ones that were chosen. and. It's important for us to kind of really, I want to drill down on this because there's a a tremendous amount of work that has been done across the country in the academy, but also in the communities where community organizers and grassroots organizers and policy advocates have really been raising the alarm for decades about these issues, right? Like, in fact, as the highways were being built and as communities were being destroyed, people were pushing back against it. But there's a lot of also preceding historical legacies that implicate um, these communities and that dictate why they were chosen. And so in the case of I-81 in Syracuse, like you're talking about a neighborhood, Black people are fleeing the South, right? And it's it's important for us to understand that after Reconstruction, after the end of the Civil War and after the end of Reconstruction, which is a period of theoretically trying to make America a multiracial democracy, at least for men, and in this case, trying to give black men the franchise and the ability to be treated as equal citizens, that very short-lived enterprise, that very short-lived experiment was met by almost a hundred years of racial apartheid, right? And that racial apartheid not just dictated whites only, blacks only, but was also codified in law. It's kind of fascinating as an aside that that like we're having this conversation because. This conversation is situated in a meta-conversation that's happening in the country around critical race theory, and there's pushback and backlash to the 1619 Project and this kind of insistence on like not wanting to talk about the history, but we're going to talk about that history because it's really important for us to really understand that. In the 1930s, to get us out of the Great Depression, the New Deal was instituted, and the New Deal was a deal that was done by the Democrats and the Southern Democrats, Dixiecrats were the segregationist party, right? Like they were the party that wanted to maintain segregation. And so when you had this home loan rating system that basically determined where federally backed loans would go to, um, cause not just was there an overhaul in the housing market by the federal government investing money to build the housing market, to build the home building and construction industry, there also was this kind of revamping of the of the home loan industry through the home owners loan corporation, and that kind of home owners loan corporation developed this tier system that we talk about today as redlining. And they talked about communities that were beginning to have black people living there as being infiltrated with negroes, right? Like kind of like thinking about, if you will, infestations of roaches or rats or bugs or like critters that you don't want in your home is how they refer to neighborhoods and communities that had black people in them. And that quote unquote infestation or or infiltration of Negroes would then determine whether or not that neighborhood would be able to be backed by federal loans, which meant that the banks would either provide funding to those neighborhoods or or wouldn't. After some time went by of those neighborhoods, being the only places where Black people could live because the second one Black person moved in, the value of those neighborhoods homes went down. Um, And so you talk about these Black communities that were destroyed, but they were built because that really was the only place that they could live. And after Black people were fleeing because of internal displacement and after effectively being running away from the lynching that was going on in the South, coming to the North, they were looking for opportunities, right? They were looking for chances to build a home to get the Northern experience in this kind of mythology that like, oh yeah, like in the North, we'll be treated as citizens and differently than we were in the South to find out that in fact, that wasn't the case. And so if you could talk a little bit about redlining and really the way that redlining and then urban renewal really dictated um, why the highways were placed in our neighborhoods. It would be really important for folks who are not as informed about these issues as you are to know a little bit about that.
0: So just to get into redlining and urban renewal, a lot of the process that created redlining directly led to the urban renewal that demolished large portions of our city, because simply said, it made it easy for those neighborhoods to become demolished. And what I mean by that is, there's a book that I've been reading that has been talking uh, precisely about the connection between bulldozers in World War II and bulldozers being taken from tactical to practical and being brought here to the United States to bulldoze full neighborhoods. When you look at a lot of the neighborhoods that were declared slums and you know I do this for a living, I look at old, commercial development plans, old city master plans, you know, here in Philadelphia and in other cities, you quickly realize that they demolished whole neighborhoods. They demolished neighborhoods that had close units, people where, neighborhoods where your next door neighbor would watch your kid if they were playing outside front of your door. And um, one of the stories that for, for me, it gives me goosebumps today, is uh, learning about the San Juan Hill area of New York City. And if you're not familiar with San Juan Hill, that's because it doesn't exist anymore. Lincoln Center is where it used to be. And San Juan Hill was a large Puerto Rican and African-American community where Lincoln Center is today. And ultimately, it was redlined because, you know, it had Black people and other people of color. What you really saw there was urban renewal, but I would like to prescribe it by its nickname, Negro removal. You know, they, they in a sense moved all these Black and brown people out of this area of this city so that they could physically make it for white entertainment, uh, the empowerment of, of white communities. And what that ultimately did was that all those people had to move somewhere. So what, they moved the barrio on the east side, 110th, 120th Street, exasperating the housing issues that were already there and to the South Bronx, where that caused further white flight. So there's really a connection between all these things. But ultimately, redlining caused many neighborhoods that were tight knit, that were well to do to be labeled slums. And Yusef, I wouldn't be, you know, I have to make sure I claim that A lot of the times when you read about urban renewal, you hear about, oh yeah, this area was a slum, this area was beaten down. And what I've been doing of late is actually looking at photos of these urban renewal projects to see what what was a slum, what's their definition of a slum. And a lot of times what a slum actually meant was that there were Black people there. And it, it didn't matter if it was a Middle class black neighborhood, if it was a working class black neighborhood, it was a slum. And a, a lot of these issues are directly connected to the lack of investment in these communities, the neglect that these neighborhoods saw from the cities who, who didn't want to necessarily pick up trash or pier roads. And you saw that all of these things are interconnected and, and ultimately led to uh, many of these neighborhoods just, you know, being to fend for themselves. And then you would have in a sense, the finisher be the state, the city, the federal government coming in and, and, and using eminent domain to re- remove these people and and to rebuild, but rebuild for who? Usually not in the best interest of the people who are living there. And it's very scary to me because you think that a lot of these things are a thing of the past and it's very evident that it can, it can still happen. It, it's probably gonna happen in maryland with the widening of the beltway and that's been a major issue for for many years talking about there's black and brown communities adjacent to the beltway you want to expand it what are you going to do with those people there you know you i'll give you another example you can go down to the allendale neighborhood um of shreveport louisiana And, you know, they're trying to build a highway, the Louisiana Department of Transportation and Development, they want to build a highway straight through the middle of the Allendale neighborhood. Big shout out to the Save Allendale crew. They're trying their best. They're a multicultural group of people trying their best to stop this, but there's a good chance that this will be built in this decade, out of all things. You know, while we're talking about racial equity, racial justice, they are still actively building highways through our communities. And that's why I have my doubts and have a little bit of worries about, you know, the infrastructure bill, because if it's going to induce and build out more highways, who do you think it's going to affect? Who do you think are living adjacent to many of these highways? So, you know, I have my worries, Yusef, I, I really do.
1: No, I mean, I, I think I think you're right to, to have those concerns, right, because this focus on making sure that we, quote unquote, build back better is absent of the reality of not just removing the highway, but also repairing the harm. Again, general mythology in America, where like pull yourself up by your bootstrap, and like Black people have continuously done that despite everything brought against us. And every time we finally catch up in the race, like the rules change, or like, you destroy our neighborhoods, etc. And so then there's these constant setbacks. And we've, in this conversation, talked about not just the ways that wealth was destroyed, right, like not only the ways that, you know, communities were destroyed, not only like forcing and concentrating people into neighborhoods that inevitably became impoverished, that the collateral implications of were that those neighborhoods uh, did not have enough property value, right? And the way that we fund schools is through property values. And so what does that mean if, there are not enough properties that have value, that means the schools don't have the funding that they need and the schools don't have funding they need, then people inevitably who can't afford to leave wind up leaving, the people who are left there continuously get into this intergenerational cycle of divestment. Um, And I think I use the word divestment because it's an action in that they're not purposefully putting money into those neighborhoods. And in fact, what we see is that they're extracting money and resources out of those neighborhoods. And this... "Quote unquote BIF or a bipartisan infrastructure bill," and again, I think it's really important to like be explicit because they talk about it as a 1.2 trillion dollar plan, and everyone's like, "Oh my God, that's so much money!" But it's really a 550 billion dollar new funding, right? Like they're just taking 800 billion dollars out of already appropriated funds from COVID relief that they didn't spend, and they're taking that money or reappropriating it and are doing 550 new additional funds. But what isn't centered in this discussion is the racial justice component, right? Like we're not leveraging this as an opportunity to not just tear down highways and kind of like reconnect communities, but also repair the long-standing harm that was caused. And really, quite frankly, the case for reparations. One case for reparations. And so, can you really explain to people a little bit about who aren't following, who aren't, you know, steeped in the academia, who aren't? stooped in the, the details of the funding or or you know on the beltway observing the conversation and discourse can you explain to people what this bipartisan infrastructure bill is what's in it what's not in it and why it matters to us
0: okay so at least initially the important components of this bill is to really repair american roads and bridges like when you look at it you know at just like in a simple sense, it's really a repair bill, you know, like it's not enough money in this bill to really, really build back better. It's more of, you know, the investments that we should have been making in our roads and making sure that they were maintained for for, for many years.
1: Because, like, the highways are built to last for 50 years, and in the 1950s they were built, then they've already fulfilled the end of their useful lifespan. So, like, they're yep. structurally not designed to continue to be existing, but we are still leveraging them in that way. Continue. And you're right. And the thing is, is that what
0: they're saying, like, one in five miles of, of highways are in poor condition. You have nearly 50,000 bridges that are basically going to need to be repaired and replaced and i'm all about that I'm, I'm all about making sure these bridges and everything are paired especially if they're going to get our black and brown people apprenticeships and and internships and opportunities for employment but i i think the major issue with the bill is that for one it doesn't build toward resiliency it doesn't build toward climate change and The fact of the matter is, is that, like you said, Yousef, a lot of these, you know, these uh, freeways, highways, whatever you want to call them, were built very close to the mid-century mark. So we're seeing a large amount of infrastructure become decrepit at once, which means that we're going to need a lot of um, capital to actually replace these things. But what are we going to replace them with? This bill, it gives off mixed signals because you're going to spend... You know, you have $20 in the bill, essentially, to to fix critical infrastructure. But if there's no safeguards in that, there's a good chance that a good chunk of this will be spent on highway widening. If you're not explicitly saying, hey, this cannot be used to widen a 10-lane highway to a 12-lane highway, this has to be spent specifically on making sure the road conditions are technically where they need to be. For safe navigation, we have some serious problems, and I think that when when I look at this bill and what I would ideally want to see, um, for one, there was not there was not enough given to the Reconnect America Act, and that's really giving the money to our state DOTS, our community-based organizations, and our people on the ground who are working to remove these highways and and repair our American cities by rebuilding close-knit neighborhoods, by, by re-knitting re- neighborhoods back together, I feel overall that the bill fails to meet the mark. This bill could have been out of the 1980s. You could imagine it. You, you could imagine Jimmy Carter putting this bill out. This bill doesn't feel like it's 2021. And that's why I have um, I've had issues with the bill, because I think that at this point we are in a climate emergency and we know that all this critical infrastructure, just like, like we were speaking about earlier, a lot of this are adjacent to black and brown communities. just like the, you know, there were so many issues you know stemming for how the, how they, they were going to remove i-81 because you have neighborhoods adjacent to it. there are neighborhoods
1: but you can beat from the highway right like, or schools that are like right you know, with a few hundred feet from the highway. Yeah. So yeah, you're right.
0: And, and being extremely vague about that to the last minute, that that's unacceptable for our communities. And we have communities, neighborhoods across the country that are going through it, whether it's I-64 and, and Memphis being built straight through the middle of the community, there's so many issues here that it could be overwhelming. It can be, but the way I like to look at this, Yusef, is that there's this is an opportunity to rebuild. This is an opportunity for major reconciliation. And one thing that I would have really hoped to see in the Build Back Better plan was a plan for for land grants. You know, I think that a lot a lot of these areas where these highways were built, we know for a fact that they were taken away by eminent domain or by other government processes away from black and brown communities. I, I would like to see not only a way for, in a sense, reparations for these communities, but you know, I would like to see a clean opportunity zone where, where there's actually money flowing into the hands of black business owners, brown business owners who are trying to empower their communities. We all know that the opportunity, opportunity zones plan, it didn't really touch our communities in the way that that most people kind of predicted, especially people who, who early on were saying that this is going to be a way for developers to throw money into communities. And it may have not caused the gentrification that people thought, but I want to see that influx of cash into our communities so that we can rebuild and that we can rebuild for ourselves. And I just don't see that in the bipartisan infrastructure plan. I, you know, I think that there's, it's a step in the right direction. But if this was 1980, if this was 1979, this would have been this would have been perfect. This would have been great, but because it's 2021, and we need to plan for resiliency, we need to plan for climate change, and we need to plan for racial justice, and and really future of our of our nation really coming back together and and figuring out a way to reconcile a lot of our a lot of the issues that we had in the past. It's not enough. It's not cutting the cheese. It's just not.
1: So so when I when I think about the kind of multiple crises that we're experiencing, right? So in right. one sense, black and brown folks and indigenous people are bearing the burden of the convenience. And this is what the kind of what, why I was really involved in I-81 was because the discourse around the replacement of I-81 largely centered on suburbanites ability to get into the city and out of the city quickly and easily and less about the people who lived five, seven, 10 feet away from the highway or the children who go to Dr. King's school. And you know, there's been an amazing amount of organizers and movement and folks uh, who have been really thinking and talking about this from a jobs perspective, from a racial justice perspective, from an environmental justice perspective, um, but it isn't just enough for the highways to come down as you say, right? Because the highway coming down is kind of like we made a mistake and we should undo the mistake that we created, right? In the first sense. But then the second sense is that we have to like repair the harm that we cause. And a part of the repairing of the harm is we displaced thousands of people. And for decades, we've concentrated people in poverty and really continue to perpetuate legalized segregation, right? like de facto segregation, whether it's because we've had a highway that allowed largely white communities to have what the research and literature talks about as white flight to kind of come into the city and leave and come into the city and leave and really all that money flowing over the highways with them um or because of you know the centers for disease control talking about residential proximity to highways where if you live next to a highway you're more likely to have respiratory illnesses go figure because of the Leaded and unleaded fumes that you're breathing in, Um, you're more likely to have diabetes and high blood pressure, right? You're more likely to not only have high diabetes and high blood pressure, but also have a shorter lifespan. It's a no-brainer why the highways ought to come down because of those harms that are pretty clear. But then, like when you when you add to the fact of climate change, climate change is disproportionately affecting Black and Brown communities in many ways, right? So exacerbating what is known as the heat idling effect, which is like where concrete attracts heat, which means all of those fumes that are being being exhausted from cars, the pollutants that are just in our neighborhoods, because we also live unfortunately really close to environmental hazard sites, that we're breathing that and the heat is making that as the climate and the planet is warming, is making that more readily around us. So we're breathing in more toxic air. Then you add to the fact of climate change also causing more extreme weather events, lots of uh, over flooding and who also lives next to, what also is next to these areas like wastewater treatment facilities. So you have water overflowing and you have flooding in these neighborhoods and not only are they being forced to breathe in toxic air but also are being flooded and not only are being flooded, but the pollutants from those flood episodes are being brought into the communities. And what do highways do besides like really put all that? And if you have to be on I-81 on a rainy day to understand this, and I know anyone who's lived in Syracuse or really any highway in the country where this happens, when you have this extreme weather event, it rains and has a crazy amount of downpour, and then all of that water concentrates and flows down into the neighborhoods that are literally right off of the highway. Again, largely black and brown. So climate change is exacerbating these issues. So, From a climate justice perspective, these communities are harmed. So whether it's a racial justice perspective and historical racism and discrimination, or it's a climate justice perspective or an environmental racism perspective, then an education equity perspective going to hyper-segregated underfunded schools that are then forcibly underperforming because of the lack of funds and the lack of access to resources and then a the transportation perspective, right? So if cars are the way that we transport ourselves to and from places, and if we don't have a robust public transportation system, then how are people going to get to the jobs that are there and available? And then lastly, a housing justice perspective, where our, housings are, our housing stock is not up to date, they're not climate resilient. So all of these things combined together demonstrate why we had a unique opportunity to really do something big. And I'm not even talking about reparations, like actually paying people who are alive today, who have suffered from their homes and their families' homes being destroyed so that other communities can benefit. In the last few moments that we have, I want, want to hear you talk about your research and what you're doing at can and really what you're learning, like, who is doing this right? Like, are there are there communities that are doing this right? Like, what is the norm? What is happening around the world in this area? Because highways don't just exist in the U.S. They're everywhere around the, the world. And so are there other places that we should be looking to? And, you know, we still have some time for 81 to get it right because of the environmental impact thing that's taken forever. Um, but there are also uh, other communities that are coming along. And I, why I was so gung-ho about, Syracuse was that, to your point earlier, it's one of the earliest ones to happen. So therefore, if if we can set up a chain reaction for other communities, that this can be a model for how we actually do it right. So I would be interested in kind of getting all your thoughts and all those questions together.
0: Yes. So, you know, I I just began about now three months ago at the University of Pennsylvania's uh, Stuart Weitzman School of Design. Thank, Thank you very much. It's a blessing to be here. And I, I knew from the gate that my research was going to be in highway removal, because I feel like it's such, a, it's such an important topic right now, but I only think that it's going to expand in the future. And one of the things that, in a sense, pushed me a little deeper into this field was really like a few years ago, there was a lot of talk about... The EV market and, and and investing in EVs are going to be the way to solve the climate crisis. And I felt I felt taken aback by that because you know while I do think that EVs play a part in it, the the idea that that's going to be the end all be all to me is not it, it's not true. I think what I want to focus on and what I think the United States should be focused on, maybe even internationally, is trying our best to eliminate um, vehicle miles traveled, seeing everything we can do to invest in a reliable passenger and freight rail service to get as many people and goods off the road as possible. And I think at least looking in the future, what I'm doing now is, is working with Collective Form. I'm a founder of that. And we're, we're, we're down in New Orleans working with Amy Stelly. You know, she's, Amy Stelly's doing amazing work with um, Claiborne Avenue and Alliance, trying their darnest to, um, you know, to get some traction on removing the Claiborne Expressway. If you don't know, the Claiborne Expressway was built straight through the middle of the Treme and Seventh Ward communities, right in the, the neutral ground in the middle. It's a large neutral ground where the community would come together to do the second-hand bands. You know, they'd be on the horses, the Mardi Gras Indians. And, you know, I, I have to be honest in saying, seeing them trying to do the same things today underneath a dark, dirty highway that I know for a fact is probably taking years off of their life. Because if you're underneath a highway, that's some of the worst air you could breathe possible. You're, you're, you're literally breathing in most of that exhaust so we're down there working, um, using our a digital platform to create a walkable, equitable community for the people who live there today. Um, we went down there to New Orleans. We're going to hopefully go back down there again to work more with Mrs. Stelly, And, and what we want to do is just improve this neighborhood for the people who live there. To me, that matters more than this PhD. That matters more than any of the academic alkaloids. I'm here to work for the community. I'm here to to improve the lives of black people and to really fight for, you know, racial justice. Because I feel that, you know, if if we're not investing in our black and brown people, what's the future of this country? We are the future of this country. We're strong, America's strong. And I think the closer we get to that and the more we see black people and brown people uplifted, we're gonna have that economic boom when we can be as creative as we wanna be in our communities and have the wealth to build our our communities the way we want to god only knows what's going to happen to america then and I, i i hope to be alive to see that day and that's what i work for every day
1: jay thank you so much for being here with us today i have so many many more questions i'm definitely looking to Get you to come back on again at some point. Please r- remind people of the group that you're working with in New Orleans, so they can know where can they go to find out more information and how can they connect if they want to be involved. Please share that information with folks.
0: Yes, of course. So the group is called Collective Form. Uh, we we've been working in New Orleans or New Orleans, excuse me, for more than a few months now, and we're working on building out a digital model of the Claiborne Expressway corridor with and without the the highway to show community members and show local officials, this is the things that we can do. But the ultimate hope is to change the way we look at planning. You know, directly working on the I-81 project that it was very top down. They came in with the plan and dropped it on the community. We want to we flip the whole script. We want to bring a community focused plan to the political um, and federal stakeholders so that we know that we're pushing our, the agenda for the community, not the other way around. You can't come and build in our community without the consent of the community. This is our plan. You got to buy by our plan. That's the way we're working here is to develop a community first plan built by the community for the community. And, you know, you got to work with that plan and we're not going to accept any other plan that you bring in here.
1: As we often say, nothing about us without us. You exactly. did, listening to Afro Futures, a production of WAER, uh, I have had the pleasure of interviewing my good friend, Jay. Thank you for being here today. Uh, the pleasure was truly mine, and I hope to be back soon. Afro Futures is produced by WAER Public Radio and Kevin Kloss.